Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in prayer because you believe, we believe that you hear prayer and answer prayer, particularly from those who love you. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom. We ask for new insights today. We ask for something that would help us to understand the world and understand our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, it may be an old story these days. It's a story that we've heard many times. Uh, with the spills of oil in the Gulf, the Gulf War s- spill, for example. Uh, and uh, remember this, the deep water spill? It's called the, uh, w- it's called the deep her- water horizon spill. The spill where, the, uh, where British Petroleum couldn't seem to ever cap off the oil that was spilling into uh, the Caribbean. Uh, remember that? Uh, and, of course, the Exxon Valdez, that goes down in, uh, in our memory. That's something we always remember. Uh, this this morning, these may be old things and and so forth, but they point to something I wanted to say this morning. I want to give you a little story from our old friend, Arthur Gordon. Uh, I hope it will appropriately set the scene for the discussion today about sin and wisdom. That's my goal, is that it will. Uh, so follow me the best you can with this little story. Uh, it, it's, it's a story called that he calls, in a little book called The Touch of Wonder, called The Day We Almost Didn't Go, because that's exactly what happened. He almost didn't go on an outing with his kids. Uh, his kids were asking him to go on an outing to a deserted beach on the Georgia coast. And uh, it, was, it was not too far away from his home, and so it's uh, one of those outings that he could take his little skiff, his little boat, uh, to. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of those places with a, you know, a deserted seashore where kids could find sand crabs and seashells and and actually in Georgia there in that particular location, the raccoon tracks, and, and there are wild goats that would, uh, that would show up there. And so it was a lot of fun for the kids. But here's the problem. Uh, Arthur didn't really want to go. He was more interested in doing some other things. He admits that he was, essentially he admits that he was being lazy. He'd rather watch the game. Anyone ever been that way, particularly in September when, you know, the really important, yes. Absolutely. Sometimes you'd rather watch the game than do the things that you know deep inside that you're supposed to do. Spend time with your family. Yes, I can relate to that. So he was being a little lazy. Uh, But Arthur knew that his kids needed to come first, so he gave in. He gave in uh, the thing that all fathers are supposed to do, give in when their children are begging. Well, maybe not every time, but sometimes, right? Sometimes you just know you're supposed to spend time with the kids, and so he gave in. So there he was, carrying his little boat through the mud. The tide was out. And next thing you know, he was riding up the coast in that little boat for about 15 minutes. Uh, once he got out, he was glad that he did. He was experiencing the outdoors. He could feel the calm breeze. I'm sure at that point he wondered, why, why was he lazy before? Why didn't he jump, to, jump on this to, to begin with? There were five passengers in this boat. There was Arthur himself. There was his dog, a Sheltie. And there were his three kids. And so soon they made their destination on the Cesar Beats. And he writes the following. I want to share this with you. The skiff eased into a quiet cove. I cut the engine, and at once the surf thundered in our ears. My Sheltie sprang ashore and sank his astonished chin in, uh, chin in damp and porous sand. 
the children floundered after him, carrying the anchors they had been taught, a fearsome crew, really. Uh, there was Kinsey, 13. She was wearing blue jeans, scissored off raggedly at the knee. There was Dana, 11. She, she wore an old cashmere sweater that was my own, full of holes with sleeves so long that she seemed to have no hands at all. And there was Mac. Mac was eight. He wore a sweatshirt with an improbable-looking bulldog stenciled on it. I mean, they're in Georgia after all, so I'm sure they're Georgia bulldogs, this kind of thing. So I hope that you get the scene. I hope you get it. Um, I, and I, I, I would just even encourage you, if it helps you, to close your eyes for a moment and just, just see yourself on that shore. The wind is blowing in a very, with a very light breeze. You can smell the salt air. You put your toes in the sand for a moment. Oh, you feel how that sand is. A little warm on top, but as soon as you get down a little bit lower, it's nice and cold. And keep listening to the story. He writes this. He says, The kids and my Sheltie raced away through the sea oats. Uh, so many things to find and do and take for granted. Fiddler crabs to catch and carry home and to be harnessed with thread and coaxed with are coaxed to pull paper chariots. Marsh swallows nets, nests, sometimes with eggs. Skeletons of rowboats. Uh, old rowboats broken down on that shore. Skeletons of rowboats resting their weary bones against the dunes. Floats from nets, starfish and sand dollars, conscious eggs and horseshoes, crabs, all flung carelessly by the lavish hand of the sea. I watched them go with tolerance and amusement. I, I too, a, a taker for granted and, and with less excuse. None really, except that most of the time that's what all parents tend to be when their children are concerned. I was tilting the engine to keep the propeller out of the sand when I heard the Sheltie barking, hysterically. High-pitched yelps coming fast downwind. A moment later, Mac, my eight-year-old Mac, came rushing back, eyes dark with, with excitement. Daddy, Daddy, come quick. A, a bird, a, a big one, maybe a goose. He can't fly. He, he's hurt or something. Hurry. Through the soft sand, heavy-footed, into the dune grasses, up over the shallow rise, and there on the beach, shadows against the sun dazzled, the two girls in the Sheltie surrounding a strange penguin-like silhouette that lurched and flopped awkwardly. Long neck and javelin bill lunging defiantly at the dog. I came close and saw that the web saw the web feet, too far back for walking, the sleek head and the angry eyes. It was a loon. It was a loon. Feathers matted into a hopeless tarry mass. Looking at it, I felt something wince inside me. The worst thing that can happen to any creature is to be made incapable of doing the thing it was created to do. What's wrong with him, Dana cried, not far from tears. Well, he's got two flows for civilization, I said. And I told him how sometimes a ship discharges fuel oil that makes a heavy slick on the ocean and how a diving loon might come up from underneath into that deadly film and his plumage so saturated that it could not fly. And now the story continues. I'm not going to give you the whole story, but it points to, to something here about 
wisdom. Ultimately, I hope you see that. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, the, the family, I should say, the family actually cleaned up the bird, took the bird home, cleaned it all up, washed it multiple times, finally t- set it back out into the wet wilderness. So the story ends, ends, ends well. But, um, uh, but the story reminds me, and I hope it reminds you, that something is not right with our world. In fact, nature itself, nature itself, will give us reminder after reminder in our lives. Day after day it will speak to us that something strange, we just know it in here, don't we? Something strange has happened to our world. Um, We know. We know this. We know this when we are able to do it because we have uh, such a wonderful, uh, what is going on here? There we go. We know birds should be able to fly, right? We know fish should be able to swim in our rivers and in our sea. Uh, we know that nature, nature should look something like this, like on the screen. Nature should look beautiful. Things should be like this everywhere we go. But nature is filled with terror, isn't it? Isn't nature filled with terror? I would not want to be a fly hovering over a pond with frogs, right? You know? I wouldn't want to be a lamb in the midst of lions. Um, Nothing, something's not right with nature. Nature is not what it's supposed to be. And I'll say this. Oh, there, I just said it for you. Um, now I have to figure out how to get back to the screen that I wanted on this. Oh, no, it cannot be. It cannot be. How can I do this? I want you to have the sermon on the screen. And I'm not, oh, there it is. There we go. I'm sorry for the interruption. Okay, now we're good. Now we're good. All right. Um, Two weeks ago, I preached from Romans 8, 28, which says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, And you might think today, well, you know, the pastor is going to go ahead and preach through the following verses. The following verses are very intriguing, by the way. Uh, and the pastor's going to preach on that, but I'm not. I'm going to simply slow down today. I want to tie in wisdom in Romans 8.28. I, I want it to make sense. I want to stop and talk about all things. I, I want to revisit wisdom that I preached on three weeks ago, and I want to uh, revisit this all things, Romans 8.28, all things, uh, that I talked about two weeks ago. And I hope it ties in uh, well together. I told you two weeks ago that all things include suffering. The suffering, and, and it certainly does, the suffering of humanity. I also told you that all things include the incredible challenges that we face. Right? All things work together. Those are a lot, many of those things are just simply challenges that we face as Christians. But I want to expand your thoughts a little bit. I want you to think about what all things means. All things means all things. It means more than uh, our own personal human challenges. It means more than our own personal suffering. It, it has to do with the entire world. It has to do with the entire cosmos. 
And, and we know that for those who love God, all things, the cosmos, the universe, if you will, all things made work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I hope that you can hear the echo of, of the, what Paul said earlier in Romans 8 about the creation, where he says this, beginning with verse 18 in chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the second coming he's talking about. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, it doesn't produce in a way that it has a future. Not willingly, like creation didn't want that, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the children of God. Notice the tie-in of the cosmos to humanity. That somehow you and I are so important to God that the whole world around us somehow is affected by what we do and what we did in the garden. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation, the entire creation, all of it, has been groaning in travail together in the pains of childbirth until now. All things includes all things. God working in circumstances around us? Absolutely, of course. But God working within nature? I think Paul has this on his mind. He just talked about creation in terms of the cosmos. God working within nature. All things working together for good for our benefit because he loves you and me. But you know, with today when we step out of the church, uh, we're going to look around, and I hope that you have some sort of awareness of what's going on around, around us. We're going to look around and we're going to see that things are not quite right. Loons dive into oceans and come up in an oil slick. Skies are filled with smoke. Just wait. Just wait. Wait till the end of the summer. I know we're having some cloudy weather right now. It's raining. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I have the suspicion that it's going to get smoky around here right? at the end of the summer. And when we see that, we know that it's not supposed to be that way. All those fires and so forth. Rivers are not filled with fish, although there's some fish out there, but they're not filled with fish the way they're supposed to be. According to, I, I'm going to throw out this little piece of data here. According to Wild Fish Conservancy Northwest, our wild, wild steelhead populations are only 1% to 4% of what they were in 1895. You know, you know, someone told me this week, he said, ah, it's no big deal because, well, I didn't know if he said that. He didn't, actually didn't say it that way, but he said, hey, you know what happens when you eat a uh, hatchery fish? It tastes just like the wild ones. Okay, that may be true, but, there, but there's something wrong with steelhead populations dropping that far. There's something going on in our world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we know that if we just look at all. Uh, nature, nature testifies to this reality. But we have this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God has a plan. 
He has a plan for the world around us. He has a plan for nature. He has a plan for the church. Um, that means that God has a plan for you and me. He loves you. He loves the whole world. He has a plan. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to take it. This is kind of an aside. This is not my main point in the sermon, but I just can't, I just can, can't get around this. I have to say this. Um, did you know that God is not working for good for those who love only themselves? Now, there's a sense in which he is, okay? Because God gives grace, period. He loves everyone. And there's a sense in which he is working for good for people to leave their sin and enter into a relationship with God. So there's a sense in which, yes, he is working for good everywhere, for everyone, because he loves all of humanity. But I'm telling you, God is not working in the midst of one's passion and love for the things of this world. He is not working for good for those who love only themselves. Now, I qualified that, but nevertheless, there's a sense in which he's not working for good for those who only love themselves. Because after all, Romans 8.28 says what? And we know that God is working for good, what? For what? Those who love him. Those who love him. But for those who love only themselves, they, they're up against it. Uh, God is not working for good in that particular aspect of their lives. Um, I, I put it this way, and those who took Revelation with me uh, will understand this, I think, I hope. They'll understand this. God is not working for the human program. Now, now, the human program continues to go on. Uh, the human program is attempted in our political system, in our economic system, uh, and some, some oftentimes, unfortunately, even in religious systems. The human program continues to go on. There's a thing that humanity is after and what humanity wants to accomplish in this world. But the human program, human agenda, died when Jesus died on the cross. I don't know if you understand that or not. Those who took Revelation with me, I hope you get that. I hope you understand that. See Revelation 11, 13. So let's go there for a moment. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11. I've got to spend a little time on this. I think this is important. Because the truth is that although God loves the world, we've got to say this. God is not working for people who love only themselves. Like he's not taking an act, an act, an active stance for people who say, "Well, that's that's what we want to do. We want to build that city. We want to build that city of humanity." God says, "No, you're not going to build that city of humanity. Uh, it's it's not going to happen." So turn to eleven chapter uh, chapter eleven of Revelation, and this is a complex passage, but I'm going to share something with you anyway. Okay. Uh, take a verse, verse 7. Here we have the law and the prophets all being consummated in Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. I'd have to spend a lot more time with you to explain that. But look at verse 7. Talking about those, uh, Elijah and Moses who represent the law and the prophets. It says this, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. In other words, in Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, not heavenly Jerusalem, but earthly Jerusalem. For, there, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, that's an important 
important um, identification in the book of Revelation means the world, those who are not Christians, those who dwell on the earth. will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because, they have, or because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But the, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered into them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And when they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Then they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. In other words, what's happening here, and this is very complex, and we spend a lot of time on it in Revelation, that what's happening here is the Old Testament law and the prophets is being tied up together with the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who was crucified, and he's the one who was raised from the dead, and he's the one who was ascended. And then verse 13, this is the point. This is what I want to show you that the New Testament teaches that the human program is dead. Verse 13, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And you're going to read in your version, a tenth of the city fell. But that's actually not what it says in the Greek. Okay? In the Greek, it says this. Boy, that language got messed up on the PowerPoint. Because it's correct on my computer. Well, I'll just tell it to you. You're not anyone here read Greek anyway? Can't read Greek, so it's okay. It's all Greek to you. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. But it actually doesn't say that. Okay, it doesn't doesn't say it quite like that. Okay, but look, notice the next part is what's most important. And killed in the earthquake, names of men, seven thousand. Here's what my translation says: seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. But that's not at all what the Greek says point is that names of men, name has to do with nature. In other words, the human program, those of you who took Revelation, you following me again? Reminder? The human program died at the cross. It died when Jesus was crucified. It died when Jesus was resurrected. It died when he ascended. The human program, those who are in defiance of God, there's a sense in which humanity's agenda for building their city, think Tower of Babel, for building their city is over. There is only one program, friends, only one program that actually is lasting, and it's the program that God uh, sets forth in Jesus Christ. Names of men, 7,000. In other words, a completeness of the human program is dead. It's dead. You think you can build your own kingdom? See, this is one of the big problems in, uh, for Christians today. We think that we can build our own little kingdom. Oh, we'll go to church on Sunday. But the reality is, is I got my own little program on the side, and I'm going to make a name for myself. And what does the New Testament teach? The New Testament teaches you, don't, you can't build that name. You can't use that name. You cannot build your own kingdom. There's only one kingdom that you can be a part of that's lasting, that's eternal, that makes a difference, and it's the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you didn't hear anything else, hear that. Okay, because that gets pretty complex. And I, and I resisted sharing that stuff with you. But there you go. I get off on these things. They're almost tangents. All right? But it's really important that we understand that. Okay, now, moving on, moving on. Three weeks ago, I talked about wisdom. Chokmah. And I told you that to be wise is to think like God thinks. Um, well... 
God designed the world to work. Think about it in the garden, right? Everything worked. God designed the world to work. But we go out here in the church, right, after, after this morning. And we, it might be a beautiful day out there. I don't know if the sun's out or whatever right now. Is it out? I don't think so. We live in a world that is sick. Nature testifies to the sickness of everything around us. And I haven't even talked about human beings. How are you doing in your families? Anyone upset this morning? How are you doing with your friends? you have enemies? Human beings aren't doing well, but we don't even need that. Nature testifies to the fact that things aren't doing well, but God designed the world to work. Check this out. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, this is in the sixth day, talking to the first man and first woman, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So that's humanity, right? Humanity is being provided for. Verse 30, chapter 1 of Genesis. And to every beast, notice the inclusive scope here, every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. You know what we have here? We have the perfect providential system, and it's eminently wise. Eminently wise. Wise above all others. You know, we've never figured out how to do this on planet Earth since the fall, have we? We have programs for feeding the hungry. Down over here, we, you know, down over here we have Helping Hand. Uh, we're talking about putting in a ministry here, starting a ministry here in, se- in September of feeding people. We've never really been able to do this, have we? God began this way with creation. He gave us a perfect providential system. Eminently wise. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 10 for a moment. Jeremiah is dealing with all the gods. Gives a description of the gods being made by human hands. Verse 11 of chapter 10 says this, Thus you shall say to them, in other words, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish on the earth and from under the heavens. And then check out verse 12. Is he who made the earth by his power, we're talking creation here, who established the world, what? By his wisdom and by his understanding stretch out the heavens. Um, What does it mean? What does it mean that God made the world by his wisdom? Have you ever asked that question? I think some of you have probably read the Bible all your lives, and you've run across this kind of uh, language in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. I have the suspicion there's got to be someone here who's read this and never understood what it means or what it, or what it meant 
that meant and what it means. What does it mean that God made the world by his wisdom? Very important question for us to understand this. Remember what Arthur Gordon said? He said the worst thing that can happen to any creature is to be made incapable of doing the thing it was created to do. What happens when God uh, makes things with the, using his wisdom? Check it out. Think about this. The best thing that can happen to any creature is to be capable of doing the things it was created to do. You know what it means? It means uh, that uh, God made the world through his wisdom? It means that it works. It means it works. They say, now this is kind of a fine theological point. Why am I interested? That does affect my life today. It affects the way we think. God made the world to work. You know why? Because God is good. Do you think it might take a little bit of wisdom to know how to make a cell work in the human body? It's not just knowledge, is it? It's the interrelation of parts. Think about that for a moment. There's a reason why microbiologists have been standing up lately and going, hey, you know what, uh, this whole thing about, um, about um, you know, everything evolving uh, doesn't always make sense. And we just doesn't quite work out. It's too complex. There's something more going on in the world. There's something more going on in this thing that Christians call creation. And we say, yeah, God's wise. God knows how to make things fit together. He understands the relationships between the parts. That takes wisdom. Very important, very, very important uh, a thing to, to, to realize. Now, uh, let's take a look at Proverbs 3. And I want to tell you this. Wisdom helps us to live in the light of God's original design. Adam and Eve lived in the light of God's original design. All the parts worked together. The garden was, was absolutely incredible, right? And what is the role of wisdom in our lives? It's to help us live in the light of God's original design. It's so that life works. You remember three weeks ago when I talked about, about fathers praying for the children and so forth? We pray so that life works for our kids, right? So things fit together. So they have good relationships with each other. They have good relationships with parents. They have good relationships with family. They have good relationships with friends. They have good relationships with God. Wisdom helps us to live in the light of God's original design. Now, I've actually never had anyone tell me that before. I don't know why. I've always run into Proverbs 3 and looked at verse 13 and I said, I don't know what that means. That's what it means. Proverbs 3, check it out. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Why? Because that's the way, that's the means, the way that you're, the means by which you are designed to live. There's a foolishness, an absolute foolishness to live in a way that you're not designed to live. Right? It's like, think of a, think of a car. Right? I just bought a truck out here. My friend Kevin talked me into that. I don't know about that truck. Kevin says, it's a fantastic truck. I say, is it a fantastic truck? He says, it's a great truck. His son, Jared, said, it's a great truck. Maybe it is a great truck. Okay. But it has a few things wrong with it, right? The tailgate is like 
off the truck. I tried to get the license plate on in the back. I can't get it on. I'm not kidding you. I, I haven't figured it out. I mean, it's going to take someone a little more mechanical than me because the old license plate was all stuck on in a way that I had to pull it off. But it's hard to explain. You look at the truck and go, man, this thing, I, I think it's a mess. But Kevin says it's a great truck. Okay. But it has problems. The seat's ripped out and everything. But, it has pro but it's only a $1,000 truck. Kevin says it's like, you know, a $5,000 truck. Well, okay. So I didn't pay much for it, and that's great. But it's not really, it was originally designed to be a better truck. How about that? And don't we understand that, though? Wisdom helps us to understand how to live. That's why we seek after wisdom. This is why the, pro the, the writer of this uh, proverb right here says, blessed is the one who knows how to live, who knows how things fit together. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Okay, let's look at the rest of this. Here's the reason why this is great to have wisdom. The reason why it is great to have wisdom, and that's that little, little, little word for means in verse 14, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all of her paths are peace. She is the tree of life to those who lay hold of her and those who hold fast uh, that hold, hold her fast are called blessed. <sighs> These are the reasons why wisdom is such a great thing to have. And this is the reason why dads can keep praying for your children. And look at this. Wisdom is actually written into creation. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Why is the person who gets wisdom blessed? In essence, it's because it's written into our reality. It's the way that life is meant to be. And this is exactly why sin is insane if you're living in sin right now if you're living in sin let's be honest if you're living in a way that is not consistent with the scriptures is not consistent with the person of jesus christ you're nuts because all you're doing is damaging yourself because god has not made you to live in sin you're swimming upstream friends you're going the wrong way God has made the stream to flow a certain way, and you're saying, I don't care, I'm going to swim upstream. Good luck. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, for those who are willing to swim the way that God calls us to swim, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I mean, the choice is ours, right? That's the amazing thing that God gives us this choice. We can, we can live a sinful lifestyle all we want. Go for it. You'll be worn out. You're going to be broken at the end of your life. You're going to have regrets. And then, oh yeah, by the way, you get to enter into judgment. Have fun with that. 
You know, God loves you so much that he's written judgment into this because he's trying to warn you to get right with him. Anything else is crazy. It's crazy. Anyone here have a broken life? Anyone here had a broken life? That's God saying, hey, you're not living in my wisdom, not living in Jesus Christ. I have so much more I can say. I'm not going to do it. I have a lot of things I can say about Jesus being the man of wisdom. But, you know, there's always more to say. (sighs) What God is calling us to is to live a life that is pleasing to him. Because, you know, the reality is, is that if we live a life that is pleasing to him, God's going to, I mean, he pulls out all the stops to work for us, even in the midst of our suffering. Anyone here today want God's blessing? Or would you rather hold on to your sin? Maybe you'd rather be like that loon that dove into that ocean and came up with oil. That's the oil of death. So is sin. This morning I want you to know that you are welcome at this table. This table is a table of forgiveness. This table is a table of freedom. This table is a table of the cross. Jesus is here at this table. And he did not come to condemn us. (laughs) He came to set us straight so that we would live, so that we would live. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for simple elements of bread and, and the cup. And I pray, Jesus, even if I've lost people in that message at times, I pray, Lord, that they would at least get this point, that you have come because you love us, that you've come to set our lives in a direction that makes sense with, with your design, that you would set our hearts free here today. No pretending, no acting like we're Christians when we're not, but getting right with you because you offer your blood and your body for us. May this communion be a time of healing and transformation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.